You can turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's roughly in the middle of your Bible after the book of Psalms. Well, let me start with a little story for you to introduce the idea, the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. I was an engineer at A&M. I studied mechanical engineering, and for those of you who are not engineers, when you're an engineer, you kind of spend your whole four or five years dreading the last class that you'll take. It's called your senior design project. And for this last class, this capstone class, you're going to be part of a group that is going to spend countless hours over the course of four months stuck in a computer lab with no windows and and no hope really in the whole room. It's just really depressing room. And you're going to work for a client that has petitioned A&M to do design work for them. It's a really hard class. It kind of brings together everything you've studied. Now, we were a lucky group. I and three of my friends, our client was NASA. And we were commissioned to design a spacecraft that would launch on the shuttle and ferry three astronauts to Mars. And I thought, that's like the coolest thing ever. I want to design that. Now, I know it is unrealistic to think that NASA would use the design of some students at A&M, but there's a chance. And if you're telling me there's a chance, I'm going to get really excited about it. And so we worked our tails off, not for weeks, but literally for months. We spent countless hours in the computer lab studying, analyzing, designing, testing, and putting together this massive report, way over 100 pages, just massive, full of our designs. And, And we were exhausted as we turned it in at the end of the spring semester, but excited because NASA had promised to put a few engineers over the the reading of our report and we'd hear back from them. So we went away for the summer and we didn't hear anything. And we thought that's a little bit odd because other groups are hearing from their clients. We're not hearing anything. We get back in the fall because I wasn't done yet. I kind of took the long path and still nothing. There's, There's no emails. There's not even a report. I go to the engineering department. There's nothing there. Well, funny story for you. Our professor retired that summer, and when he retired, he forgot that he had all of our paperwork on his desk until a janitor came in to get his desk ready for a new professor and threw it all in the trash. And so probably a thousand hours of manpower went down into a landfill, never read by anybody. Professor didn't even read it. There was no grade. There was nothing. That's Ecclesiastes for you. It's a book designed to convince us that life under the sun is meaningless. This life is full of futility. And and you all know that in your hearts. You know that because you've caught glimpses of the futility of life. You have a friend who always eats healthy and runs marathons, and then she gets diagnosed with cancer. You know, a business owner who works days, weeks, nights, all the time to build up a profitable business with his life until a competitor swoops in and it's gone. You know students who studied all semester and still failed. And if you're not yet convinced of the futility of life, just look at the presidential race. Full of futility. Ecclesiastes is a book that looks unflinchingly at the cold, hard reality that life under the sun, this life, is ultimately meaningless. There is nothing in this life that has lasting value. One of the better commentators on the book of Ecclesiastes, he summarizes the message of the book. He says that the book of Ecclesiastes, it forces us to face the fact that this life is full of trouble and then you die. That's the book. 
So welcome to Grace Bible Church this morning. <laughs> Glad you came. I'm sure you woke up thinking, I just really want to hear a sermon about despair. If that's you, your wait is over. Okay, so we're going to dive into a really hard and really sad book this morning. But it is such an incredibly good book. Such an incredibly good book because Ecclesiastes is better than any other book in your entire Bible at destroying the idols that are in your life. That's ultimately what Ecclesiastes is designed to do. It crushes the idols, the false gods of this world that we're tempted to trust in. And so as we walk through Ecclesiastes over the next seven weeks, we're going to see it tear down idols like money and fame and career and success and pleasure and relationships and even marriage. All of it, it's going to tear it down. Ecclesiastes is like dynamite to the idols that this world trusts in and hopes in. Ecclesiastes is a merciless book. It takes no prisoners. It punches optimism in the face. It's an incredibly real book. But the purpose of all of that incredibly hard stuff is ultimately not to depress you. That's not the point of Ecclesiastes. The reason why it's full of so much hard truth is to get us to the point where we're left with nothing but God to trust in. You see, most Christians go through life holding to God and something else. That's what we do. We trust in God because we're Christians, but we also cling to something else that we think will bring satisfaction and meaning in our life. What is that other thing? Maybe it's money for you or career for you or a relationship for you or you think marriage is going to be that or sex or pleasure, whatever it is, there's something you're holding on to in addition to God. And as long as you're holding on to that idol, it's going to keep you from fully following God and living the life he's called you to live. And so you need Ecclesiastes. Because it is going to pulverize whatever it is you're holding on to in addition to God until you're left with nothing but him to cling to. So it's a hard book, but an incredibly good book. It's powerful. It can actually set you free. Yeah, it's a depressing book that brings freedom because it frees you from idols. So this morning, what I'm going to do is walk you through the book as a whole. We're going to look at the big idea. We're going to look at the beginning and the ending of the book to see the big picture. Then in the next six weeks after that, we'll take one idol at a time and tear it down and find God. So that's kind of the goal of where we're headed. So let's jump into this overview of the book of Ecclesiastes. The first question that you have to ask when you're studying Ecclesiastes is who wrote it? It's actually a hard question question. There's not one author of the book. There's actually two authors of the book of Ecclesiastes. The first author you're introduced to at the very beginning of the book. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The first author, as best we can tell, he is a preacher, or better word, a teacher. He teaches wisdom to the nation of Israel. We're told he's a son of David, which in Hebrew just means a descendant of David who is king. There's a lot of men who would have fit that description. But when you look at at history and you look at this book, whoever this king is, he was incredibly wealthy and incredibly wise, and that seems to fit Solomon. 
Now, Solomon's not named in the book, so we can't say that with certainty, but we're going to assume that's true because it fits nicely. Okay, so, so Solomon is probably the author of the majority of the book from the second verse. That's where he begins to speak all the way to the middle of the last chapter, chapter 12. But chapter 12, verse 9, someone else begins to speak. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also taught knowledge to the people. He carefully evaluated and arranged many proverbs. Notice it's in third person, past tense. This is not Solomon speaking anymore. This is a narrator speaking about Solomon. So sometime after Solomon lived, maybe a few years, maybe a hundred years, a, a narrator comes along who collects all of Solomon's teaching into this book and then writes a conclusion at the end that is incredible important. And we'll look at that later this morning. So you got two authors, Solomon, author number one, who writes for most of the book, he delivers the bad news. He delivers the problem to you. The narrator at the end will deliver the solution. We'll look at that later. So let's start with the problem, the bad news that Solomon lays out to us. Solomon wants us to understand that life under the sun is ultimately hopeless. There is no hope in this life under the sun. Now, what does he mean by under the sun? That phrase appears 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's talking about this life, this life you're living right now on this planet that ends when you die. This is life under the sun. And that's all that Solomon will look at. He will fixate his eyes on this life under the sun because he wants to know what meaning can be found in this life. What significance, what satisfaction can I find just in this life that ends at death? And sadly, he's going to find none. No satisfaction, no meaning, no significance at all. Look with me, chapter 1. Let's pick it up in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Look at verse 12. Skip down to verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind." That word vanity, Hebel, in Hebrew, it appears 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a big deal. It's a big idea in the book. It means futility or worthlessness. It actually begins Solomon's speech. So verse 2, it ends it too. In the middle of chapter 12, when he stops speaking, last thing he says is, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's a big idea. Solomon looks at life under the sun and he concludes, everything here is meaningless. There is no lasting significance or satisfaction in this life, and that leaves Solomon hopeless. He ends up incredibly depressed as he walks through this book. He ends up going down some pretty dark paths. Look with me at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 17. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Jump down to verse 20. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. Then he tells us in chapter 4, so I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I think this is as close as you'll get to clinical depression in the Bible. 
You, you laugh at that, but I, I really think Solomon is just utterly hopeless. He's depressed. He's full of despair. He sees no hope, no meaning, no significance, no solution in life. Now, why is he so depressed? Why is he so utterly broken? Four reasons. There's four observations that Solomon makes about life under the sun that leave him hopeless. So I'll walk you through these four observations he makes. First thing that breaks Solomon, he observes that humans, all of us, are profoundly broken. There is a problem within us. We are not okay. He observes that among all human beings everywhere. He tells us in chapter 7, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. All of us do evil things. All of us do sinful things. Ecclesiastes 9, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. We do evil, stupid stuff all the time. All of us do. That leads him further to begin to think about how our world works. He notices chapter 4. I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. He notices that we're so broken, we're so sinful that everything we do in this world is designed to get something from someone else. It's all about greed ultimately. That verse right there is why capitalism works in America. Because it is an economic system based on the assumption that people are greedy. That's why communism doesn't work. Because it's based on the hope that humans will share. No, we won't. Because we're evil. We are always competing with one another. That leads him further. Chapter 5, if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them. Selection cycle shouldn't surprise us at all. Evil and corruption are endemic to human leaders. That's what we do. We are a corrupt species, all of us. And sadly, that's not something that you can fix with the silver bullet of education. That's what people think. Throw enough education at it and people will become better. No, Solomon tells us, chapter 1, because in much wisdom there is much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Probably not going to see that verse on an A&M brochure, are you? (laughs) So students, I'm really glad you just spent thousands of dollars to increase your pain in life. Trust those of us who are older. This is true. The more you grow to know how this world operates, the more you grow in wisdom and knowledge and understanding, the more clearly you see the brokenness and pain of life under the sun. That leads Solomon further. He keeps thinking about the human condition. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. There's a man named Elie Wiesel. You may have heard of him. You read his book in high school, Night was the book. He's a Holocaust survivor who won the Nobel Peace Prize. And then he established a charity to fight hatred and injustice all over the world. And they did incredible things, a great charity. There was just one problem with it. All of its money was invested with a man named Bernie Madoff. Biggest crook ever in the history of the world. They lost $15.2 million overnight, and Ely and his wife lost all of their savings. So much good ruined by one con man. 
What Solomon is trying to help us see is that humans, all of us, are profoundly broken. And that knocks down our first idol in the book of Ecclesiastes. It destroys the idol of the intellect. The idol of of the mind, of wisdom, of knowledge. You see that idol a lot in a town like this. We are a highly educated community. There are brilliant people in this town doing brilliant work. So many people with advanced degrees doing outstanding stuff. And in the midst of that kind of environment, it's easy for us to begin to believe that we will deliver ourselves from the pain and suffering of life through our intellect. That we will solve the problems of life through our mind. That we will make the world better through our brains. We begin to trust in ourselves and our wisdom and our intellect to deliver us. That is a false idol that will disappoint you because your brain is broken. It is evil and sinful and it will disappoint you if you trust in yourself. We'll actually spend all of next week looking at that idol And breaking it down and finding God in the midst of it, Solomon's going to show us, he's going to prove to us that you cannot trust your intellect because highly intelligent people do stupid things all the time because we are a profoundly broken species. That's the first thing that crushes Solomon. It's not the last. Second thing that he sees in this life under the sun that fills him with despair, his second observation, the world never gets better. There's nothing in this world that ever gets better. That word vanity, hebel in Hebrew, it can also be translated breath. Now, what's the relationship between breath and vanity? Well, think about your breath. It is impermanent. It makes no lasting difference in your life, does it? Because you take a breath and you've got to do it again a few seconds later. You just keep breathing. You have to do it over and over and over again. It makes no lasting impact on your life. It doesn't change anything for the better because you have to keep breathing. That's vanity. That's futility. That's life. Everything in this world is futility because nothing ever gets better. Look with me, chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Solomon says, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. Solomon is the ultimate realist. He recognizes that in all of human history, nothing's really changed. Nothing ultimately has changed because human existence is still as full of pain and suffering today as it ever was. Now, that's not what our world tends to believe. Our world tends to believe that that progress can move us forward, that the human condition can get better, that we can make the world better. That belief was proven false 75 years ago. 75 years ago, what happened? Well, let's think. Go back to the turn of the last century. 
From 1800s to 1900s, the world enjoyed 50 years of unprecedented progress in every arena. Education rose, incredible scientific discoveries like electricity, incredible inventions like the combustion engine, automobiles, airplanes, radio, telephone. All of these incredible inventions led us to build tons of new factories that gave everyone jobs. There was employment everywhere to be found, and the more employment, the more education, and whole classes were rising out of poverty. It was incredible progress that led to what? A worldwide depression two world wars, a holocaust, and a nuclear bomb. All of that progress just made it easier for us to kill each other in large numbers. What Solomon is trying to do for us in this book is to destroy the idol of progress that our society trusts in. Most people believe that just given enough time, enough money, and enough hard work, human beings will improve the world. We will make our existence better through scientific progress, technological progress, economic progress, social progress. Ecclesiastes says, no, there is no real progress on this earth. Progress is an illusion. For every step we take forward as a species to alleviate pain, unintended consequences bring just as much pain back into our lives. So let's invent the internet so that everyone can be connected. Result, everyone is more disconnected from each other than ever before. Let's discover nuclear fission so we can power our cities without fossil fuels. Result, now we have enough bombs to obliterate the human race many times over. Let's discover a way where people can live in the deserts of California. What's the result? No one in California has enough water anymore. There is no progress for the human race on this planet. It's all an illusion. Nothing changes. Nothing will ever get better. And so if you're trusting in human progress to make your life better, you will be as disappointed and depressed as Solomon was. All right, you depressed yet? (laughs) Because we're only halfway done. Those are the first two things that crush Solomon. First two observations that knock him down. Here's the third. Solomon looks out and realizes that nothing in this world can satisfy. Solomon lived a very unusual life. He was one of the few people to ever live on this planet who never had to hear the word no. He literally, he had everything. Anything he wanted in the world, he could have. Richest man at that time on earth, most powerful on earth, incredibly influential. He could have anything. So there was no pleasure that Solomon could not enjoy. No possession, no relationship, no woman, no food, no, nothing. It was all his to have. He tells us that in chapter 2. Look with me, chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself, not a house, not a couple houses, houses all over the place for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a whole forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I 
I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all of my labor." Solomon had what every person on earth thinks they want, unlimited resources. This was why everyone was buying Powerball tickets. Because like a billion dollars, that kind of sounds like infinite to us. Got a billion dollars, I can do anything I want. That's what Solomon had. Absolutely unlimited power, wealth, and pleasure at his disposal. The entire world under the sun was his for the taking. And so he did, he took it. He spent a good portion of his life throwing himself into the pursuit of every pleasure this world offered, both good and sinful, anything. He didn't withhold anything from himself. Whatever his eyes desired, he took it. And after enjoying a lifetime of infinite pleasure, what did it lead him to conclude? Look at verse 11. Thus I considered all of my activities, which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. No profit. Nothing could satisfy. Nothing could make his life better, even though he had everything. And so Solomon's experience is the definitive answer to that age-old question, wouldn't my life be better if I just had a little more? A little more money, a little bigger house, a little better job, a little prettier spouse. Wouldn't my life be better? Well, the world says yes. That's what you need to make yourself happy. Ecclesiastes proves no There is nothing in this world, even if you had the entire world at your disposal like Solomon did, that can satisfy your greedy human heart. A little bit more will never be enough for human beings. John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men to ever live. In today's dollar, he was a multi-billionaire. He was once asked how much money is enough, and he responded, just a little bit more. I had billions and it wasn't enough. Why? Because he was a fool. He was trying to find his satisfaction in his money and that will never work. It left him empty inside. And so what Solomon is doing for us in the book of Ecclesiastes is he's tearing down the next set of idols. They're actually numerous. He's tearing down any idol that we turn to to find satisfaction other than God. So what is it that you look for satisfaction in that's not God? Is it money, sex, fame, pleasure, career, marriage, on and on? Whatever it is that you are clinging to to find satisfaction other than God, Ecclesiastes tears it down. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. They become wrong when we make them ultimate when we pursue them as our source of satisfaction, when we make gods of them and say, that's what I need to make my life fulfilled and complete. Ecclesiastes tears that down because it gives us a man who had it all and discovered there was nothing in it. It was all an illusion. It was meaningless. It could not satisfy. There's nothing on this planet that will ever satisfy you. That's the third thing that crushes Solomon. Third realization. There's nothing in this world that can satisfy the human heart. Fourth and final thing that leads Solomon to despair 
he looks around and realizes that for every person on this planet, life always ends in death. The statistics of death are quite remarkable, one for one, 100%. Everyone living dies. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're famous or not, whether you're righteous and good or evil and wicked, we all die. Death is inescapable. Solomon sees that reality and it fills him with despair because he didn't know what was coming next. And he assumed if this life was bad, wow, whatever's coming next must be even worse. And so he concludes in chapter 9, it is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Solomon had no hope in the next life. Now, why? Why is that? Well, because Solomon lived a long time ago and God had not yet said anything about the afterlife. You know a lot more than Solomon did because God has told us a lot in this book. He's told us that there is a life after this one and that if you've trusted in Jesus, it's better than this one. The Bible tells us that if you've trusted in Jesus as your savior, that when he comes back, he's coming for you and you're gonna be resurrected in a perfected body that no longer struggles with sin or disease or death. And you're gonna enjoy a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth that is not broken, that is not full of futility. So the Bible tells us that our best life is to come, but it tells us that in books that were written after Solomon lived. His Bible was really small. It's the first five books of your Bible called the Pentateuch, a little bit of history and a little bit of the Psalms, and that's it. And in those books, God hadn't yet said anything about the afterlife. It was a mystery. So for both Solomon and the narrator, for everyone living in their time, death and the afterlife were shrouded in mystery. Now, how did Solomon respond to that mystery? He could have responded in faith and trusted that somehow God would make things right, even if it's not in this life. But that's not what Solomon does. Instead, he responds in despair. And he concludes, if this life is painful, the next must be worse. If there's no hope now, there certainly won't be hope then. He abandons all hope. He surrenders to despair as he thinks about the next life. And so that despair leads Solomon to some very negative places as he tries to think about what advice to give us. What can he tell us? How do you live this life under the sun? Solomon really struggled to find good advice. And so as he wrestles with this life under the sun, as we walk through the book, what we're going to find is that all Solomon can do is encourage us to enjoy this life as best we can because there's no hope for anything else. So he's going to encourage us to grow in wisdom. Go study at A&M knowing that your wisdom will never deliver you. He's going to encourage us to work hard in life knowing that your hard work won't change anything. He's going to encourage you to enjoy your marriage knowing that your marriage is going to end in death. He's going to encourage you to enjoy the pleasures of this life knowing they'll never satisfy you. He had nowhere to go because his eyes were fixed on life under the sun. And if all you look at is life under the sun, you're going to be left absolutely hopeless because there is no hope here. 
There is no meaning, there is no satisfaction in this life, and that's why we need the narrator. God inspired a narrator, we don't know who, to come later and collect all of Solomon's teachings and then give us a conclusion that completes Solomon's advice. He goes further than Solomon. Solomon's advice was insufficient. It was not enough, so the narrator completes it. Let's look at that now. Turn to chapter 12, where Solomon would only look at this life under the sun and it left him absolutely without hope, the narrator goes further. He finds hope by looking at life beyond the sun. He finds hope in life beyond the sun. So the narrator picks up our story in verse 9. He tells us, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher, that Solomon, also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. So the narrator begins by affirming the, the goodness of what Solomon taught. Yes, this is, this is good because Solomon was right about this life. The book of Ecclesiastes, as depressing as it is, it is true and accurate and good because it crushes our idols, it destroys them. That's why it's like nails, it pokes you. It's really easy to fall asleep in life. And when you fall asleep in life, you begin to believe the lies of this world, that the things of this earth will satisfy your heart. And so Ecclesiastes pokes you with nails until you wake up and realize it's all a lie. So what Solomon wrote is good. He begins by affirming the goodness of what Solomon wrote. But then he admits, wait a minute though, Solomon's knowledge, his wisdom was limited. Look at verse 12. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. I think he's talking about Solomon. Solomon wore himself out studying wisdom, studying life under the sun. All he would look at is life under the sun, and that's limited. If all you'll look at is this world, it's going to weary your body and crush you in despair. And so the narrator, he admits the limits of Solomon's wisdom, and then he goes beyond Solomon. And he gives us the answer, the solution to the problem. How do you find meaning and significance in life? That's the last two verses of the book. Most important verses in the entire book. This is Ecclesiastes, verse 13 and 14. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So Solomon looked at life and he looked at death and the mystery of it all and the the sadness of it all and responded to that with despair. He just gave up. The narrator doesn't. The narrator responds to the pain and mystery of life with faith. He believes, look verse 14, he believes that somehow God is going to bring every act to judgment. He doesn't know how. God hasn't revealed anything more to him about the afterlife than he'd revealed to Solomon, but the narrator responds to mystery with faith. I don't know how it's going to happen, but somehow God's going to work everything out. Somehow God will bring justice to this universe. I'm trusting him to do that. And because I can trust God to work things out, what's the conclusion? How should I live? That's verse 13. The answer is trust and obey. 
How do you live in a world that is full of brokenness? How do you live life under the sun? You choose to trust and obey the one and only who is beyond the sun. So what the narrator does that Solomon failed to do, he takes his eyes off this world and he looks up. Beyond the sun, he sees there is a God who is transcendent. There is a God who can be trusted. There is a God who will work all things out. There is a God who gives meaning beyond the sun. And because of that, if I will obey that God in this life, then this life comes to have meaning. That's the idea. If, you, if you're living for the one beyond the sun, if you're living for the next life, that life when you will be with him, then this life starts to have meaning. This life only has meaning to the extent that you are living for the next life through faith and obedience. And so the narrator challenges us to look up. Look beyond this world, all of its pain, all of its suffering, all of its disappointment. Look beyond its idols. Let go of them knowing that they'll fail you. And look to the one who is beyond the sun, the only one who can give meaning and significance to your life. Trust and obey him and your life will have meaning. It will count and ultimately, it will satisfy. That's the truth for all of us who've trusted in Jesus. If you have chosen to believe that God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for your sins and rise from the dead so that you could have eternal life, life beyond the sun with him as a free gift, if you've trusted in Jesus, then the goal of your life is right there. Your life is going to be painful. I'm sorry about that. That's life. It's going to be disappointing. That's life. It's going to be discouraging. That's life. But it can have meaning. It can have significance. It can have satisfaction if you will live in this world trusting and obeying the one who is beyond this world. That's how you get meaning into this life. And so as we go through Ecclesiastes over the next seven weeks, my challenge to you for the whole book, we'll keep coming back to this each week. The challenge of the book of Ecclesiastes is right there in verse 13. Trust and obey. Fear God. To trust that he is God and obey him. I want to challenge you to think about your life and particularly think about the area of obedience. How are you doing when it comes to obeying the one who is beyond the sun? Is there something sinful in your life that you're clinging to, that you're, you're doing it because you believe it makes you happy, because you believe you can't let go of it, you need it? Well, Ecclesiastes is going to challenge you to let go of that sinful thing, to stop doing that sinful thing. And that's going to be my encouragement over the next seven weeks, that you'll stop doing that thing that is hurting you. Or maybe for you, it's not something bad you need to stop doing. It's something good you need to start doing. You know that God has called you to do something good, but you're not doing it because you're not trusting him with it. My encouragement to you over the next seven weeks is to pray that God will help you begin to do that good thing. My goal for our church, our campus, as we go through Ecclesiastes, is that God would grow his people in obedience. That he would help us to trust and obey him in every area of our lives because that's the only way our lives are going to count for anything. So I want you to take some time this week and prayerfully ask, God, where do I need to obey? Where am I not yet obeying you? Please convict me, challenge me, work on my heart so that I will obey you more so that this life can mean something. The second thing that I'm going to challenge you to do is to memorize those last two verses. Because that's Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. It's sad to me that everybody thinks about Ecclesiastes and thinks about the word vanity. Whole book is sad, it's all depressing, it's all vanity, futility. Well, no. You've got to read to the end. The good part is the last two verses. 
Ecclesiastes is actually a triumphant book because through the narrator, God conquers despair and brings meaning through trusting and obeying. So I want you to memorize these two verses so that when someone asks, what's Ecclesiastes about? It's about trusting and obeying God because nothing else can satisfy you. And so let's begin to do that together. We'll remind you of this every week. We're memorizing these two verses together and that we're praying that God will grow us to obey him more because that's all that matters. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you have revealed truth to us through this difficult and hard book. Lord, it's difficult for us to read because it crushes all the things that we like to think will satisfy us, all the things that we hope will make life better. Ecclesiastes doesn't leave room for that fantasy. It destroys all of these things, and that's painful for the idols in our lives to be broken. But we thank you that you love us so much that you've revealed this hard truth to us. And so we pray, God, that you would be at work in our lives over the next seven weeks destroying our idols. We just pray that you would crush them. We pray that you would do whatever it takes so that we would get to a place where all we are clinging to in life is you, that all of our hope is is found in you, God. We pray that you would purify our faith, our trust, our obedience. Help us to walk with you. Help us to obey you. Convict us of sin in our lives. Help us to trust and obey you so that this life becomes meaningful. We pray, Father, as as hard as this book is for us to read, I can't imagine how painful this would be for somebody to read who doesn't know you. Because they don't have a life beyond the sun. All they have is this life. And all the pain and suffering that they know here is still their best life. This is it. And we grieve over that, God, that they have no hope beyond the pain and suffering despair of this world. And so we pray that you would help us to tell people the good news of Jesus. We pray, God, that you would give us courage and boldness to go out there and tell people that there is a God beyond the sun who loves them, who is a father to them, who will grant them a life to come forever, and who can satisfy them and fulfill them if they will only believe. Pray, God, please help us to love our neighbors enough to tell them about life beyond the sun. We praise you, God, and we thank you that you love us, that you have not left us alone on this cursed planet, but that you've given us hope that transcends this place. You are good. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We'll see you guys next week as we continue Ecclesiastes.